Welcome back. I'm Gary Parr. And I'm Beth Ellicott. And you're listening to Fiber Talk, the twice-weekly podcast for needlework artists. Our artist this week, Holly Jackson, the master of needle lace. Hi, everyone. Thanks for having me. Okay, an art opening last night, and you were talking to hundreds of people. Yeah. Your exhibit? Well, it was me. It's actually an educational exhibit. The Maritime Museum did an art exhibit that was educational about environmental changes in the Chesapeake Bay and history and changes to sort of the traditional lifestyle. And they asked artists to submit pieces and then write something alongside it that reflected on it. So you didn't just have to make something. You had to say why you made it and why it was meaningful. And they took everything. So I was across from the stop motion animation of horseshoe crabs, for instance. (laughs) And I mean, but everything was great. You know, you say that and it sounds silly, but everything was beautiful and meaningful. But it was such a wide variety of stuff. And it was a juried art show, but the committee included both artists, but also scientists Mm. and historians. And so it was all art, but it wasn't your typical juried show selection in that sense and it was just so they let the artists in an hour early so we all got to look at everybody's stuff and it was so much fun going through everybody's stuff and seeing what everybody had done and it was also different and interesting I was sort of dreading it because I hadn't done something like it before but I had so much fun by the end I didn't expect to it was really wonderful that's really cool because that's such a an incredible ecosystem that whole Chesapeake um water system is um and to keep the awareness up and and uh importance of it is is really great yeah yeah and it'll be up for a year in their educational building so they're going to bring school groups through and anybody can come see it and i think it's going to be really fun for people to see all the different thoughts and interpretations about the local area yeah that's neat so what what's that like for you uh a juried exhibition like that uh, when you prepare something, is there, is there a a different process for you mentally to come up with something or do you just come up with something like you would for anything else and and submit it? Well, this piece was definitely a change for me. It was, so the, the call for art was open for a year. So I submitted a year ago and it just opened and I had made the piece I think I sent it to you in the photos. It's this little boat with a wooden piece and needle lace sails. And I had made it. We haven't lived here that long. I made it just after I'd moved from New Orleans. And I was trying to sort of look at the local area and think about things to make. And it was sort of the first Chesapeake piece that I had made. Um, and it's very simple, but I really liked it. So I ended up turning it in. So it was very different, not so much the juried part as just learning a new area and learning a new culture and researching it and thinking about it. Yeah. It's a neat little piece. Yeah. That, uh, yeah, I really liked it. Yeah. Cause it, it, uh, well, I mean, that's what, what you, uh, you we're going to talk about a lot is, is the way you combine different materials, but to have a, a piece of wood for the boat and then needle lace for the sails and, uh, to put that all together, that's, yeah, that's pretty neat to uh, do that. Is that um, just a piece of wood that you, would you carve it or what did you do with it? 
So it's actually those little balsa wood sticks for model making that are kind of glued together in layers and then sanded around and then varnished like you would real wood. And I think that was number 11. I threw out 10 that I wasn't happy with. I'd never tried woodworking before. It was an experiment. Um, so yeah, that was the 11th one that didn't go in the bin. Uh, but I really enjoyed it. And now I've done woodworking bits on other pieces because I liked that part of the process. And honestly, what got me thinking about it, the way I learned stump work in the first place was, you've had her on here, but Jenny Adam Christie's kits. I've done so many of her kits and her beginning kits. And she has all those little wooden pieces if you've done her kits. And I think she is related to someone who is a beautiful woodworker. So she has more options than I do because I just have me. Uh, and I don't know what I'm doing. Yeah, I think but it's... I loved... I think it's her dad. Isn't it her dad who makes the slate frames? Yeah, it's someone in her family is a gorgeous woodworker. And I just thought, I love that. And I can't make a tiny guitar or whatever she puts in her kits. But a boat's pretty simple. I can probably come up with a boat. (laughs) And it turned out I liked making little wooden pieces and doing these little bits of woodworking. So, all right. So side, side, uh, side discussion. Working on her kits, that's got to be challenging, but a lot of fun. I got to believe they're beautiful kits. They are beautiful. And actually, if you start with, so the first one I ever did was the Gingerbread Cottage. And when I was just starting out, it just looked so impossible. But her instructions are great. And it really is incredibly accessible. I think even if you'd never embroidered before, it would be accessible. And that was how I really discovered stump work was that kit. I had never heard of it. I just thought it looked cool. So I ordered it and I thought I wouldn't get through it, but I did it. And I just got kind of obsessed as a result (laughs) from there on. And I started buying books and I did more of her kits. And then I got to the point, I said, well, I want to be able to make my own ideas. So, all right. All right. Stump work. Now, (laughs) okay. That's not easy. As, as a rule. So you, her kits are good enough. You were able to learn it uh, from the kits and of course your own, your own talent, but uh, that's, that's, that's good. Cause I, I would be, I'd be lining up three different books to learn how to do it. I've never, I've just dreamed about doing it. You've done yeah. it. Yeah, I've done a little stump work. I've done a little stump work and I'm, I, I was looking at the Allison Cole book, stump work book. Cause I was getting ready to do another piece. And I was like, I need the expert here. <laughs> the Allison Cole masterclass book and then the Kay Dennis comprehensive stump workbook. When I have students say, if I love this and I buy a book, what should I buy? Those are the two I tell them to buy. Wait, wait, They're say that really again. Great. I, we need the, I, you know, Allison Cole I have, but what's the other one? So Kay Dennis, um, oh gosh, I wish I could remember the name. She did a complete, if you look up Kay and Michael Dennis, they're a couple who work together, but she's the main designer. Um, she designed the stump work program for cities and guilds in the UK, actually. Okay. Uh, she did a comprehensive stump work book. And what's great about it, and again, this is part of how I started, she has little exercise starting from very baby beginner to an 18-inch oval quilting hoop full of four seasons of scenes, which would oh. take everybody about a year. And I've always wanted to make, and I've just decided I don't have a year of my life at this point to dedicate <laughs> to it as much as I would like to. 
But if you wanted to, you could work through the whole book from the very beginning of not knowing anything and then finish that huge piece just from this one book. Okay. It's very accessible. Right. So it's it's more of a two is it a tutorial. It's not a project book, but it's it's a step by step. This is how you do stump work. It's a project book, but each project is sort of a step in the learning process. Okay. Okay. Mm. I'm going to have it's to look very into well this. designed. Yeah. yeah. So when my when my students in classes, if I teach them to make say a wired flower or something, they say, "Well, what do I do next?" I say, "Well, go look at these books, the Allison Cole and the K. Dennis." And especially right. the K. Dennis, I say, just pick an exercise that interests you and do it. Buy some cheap DMC and do it. Try it. Yeah. All right, Holly, congratulations. We're nine minutes into the conversation, and you've cost Beth and me money. Yeah. <laughs> Buy so Thanks. many books. I've yeah. just given up on that as a budgetary item. <laughs> oh, uh, yes. I, I saw that you're, that on Instagram that you said that you had that you had a, quite a collection of books when you're rearranging your workspace. And I was like, oh, I love this lady already, you know? I bought four used books yesterday. Oh, see? <laughs> no, there's nothing embarrassing about it. I don't have any place to put them. Oh. No, I love reading textile books by other people, and I get so many ideas, and I've got a huge collection. It's really quite ridiculous, but I use them all, so I can't get rid of any of them. No, absolutely not. Absolutely not. You know, they're, they're valuable, valuable items. Yes. And then now my friends know. So now they send me used textile books from other countries oh. that I didn't know existed. So now I have all of those too. <laughs> those are, to me, those are where the real value is in books. When you get them from foreign countries, because, yeah, stuff you've never yeah, seen Yeah, there's before. so much, especially there are so many regional kinds of embroidery say in the UK and as Americans we don't see those books or they're out of print we don't know they exist but sometimes they'll send me one of those that has needlework patterns for instance that I've just never seen before yeah and you don't yeah, need to really be able to great. read the you don't need to be able to read the words either just yep yeah just pictures are good enough for a lot of them yeah <laughs> all right well Kay and Michael Dennis stump workbook Ordering mm -hmm. it after we're yes. done. Mm -hmm. yep. yeah. it's, mm -hmm. If you want to learn, it's really fabulous. I, I recommend it. Um, and she was a teacher primarily. And so her her methodology is very easy if you look at it as a student. Okay. Oh, good. That's need. Yep. Mm -hmm. All right. So how did you start? So you, you, you learn stump work here from the books, but it uh, must have been quite a bit of needlework uh, prior to that. Not really. I started by accident. So I'm sorry, I'm doing the math. I'm 37. I started right before I turned 30. Mm. So I started really late and I only started um, because I had I was living in New Orleans and I had terrible insomnia. And the doctor told me that I should try either embroidery or coloring books because they tended to work for people. And I hated coloring books. I thought they were so stupid. <laughs> so I bought this in little embroidery sampler from, I think it was Pearl Soho, and it was just basic stitches and circles. And it didn't help me sleep, but I loved it. And I was living in this one-bedroom apartment, so I just sat on my bed and picked away at this little thing. And I was just kind of hooked on it. 
And I started looking around the internet and looking at all these different kinds of embroidery. And I think that was when I stumbled upon one of Jenny's kits. But I think that kit was maybe the third thing I ever tried to do. Oh, my. It was sort of really crazy in retrospect, actually. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes, um, I, haven't, I haven't even attempted one of her kits. So, and I think I hard just didn't get. know enough to know how scary or how scared <laughs> I should have been of the process. I just didn't have <laughs> enough knowledge to be intimidated, um, which is <sighs> sort of how my life tends to work. Anyway, I saw something on Instagram, a video where some people just feel like they can read one book and try something and whatever happens, happens. I'm one of those people. That doesn't always mean it goes well. Uh, <laughs> but no but fear. That's a does. good thing. That's a good thing. I don't think that that's so bad, you know, that you're willing to step out there and say, you know what, I'm just going to try it. What's the worst can happen, you know? Right. right. So and anyway, I did that and it took me a while to get through it very gradually. But once I did, I was just completely hooked on the process. Anyway, I still have insomnia, which is why my uh, brand name is Flossing in the Moonlight. Cause I work at 2am all the time. Um, but it did get me hooked on embroidery, which is not something I had ever encountered really in my life until then. All right. Now that's, so that's the solution to my problem. I just have to get a bad case of, of insomnia. Then I'll have time to do all this stuff. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Then, then you have plenty of time when everyone else is asleep to occupy. Yourself. Who knew? Wow. Uh -huh. <laughs> it helps. <laughs> yeah okay i don't think it's gonna work for me but um no i i i don't know i don't know sleep is good sleep is good sometimes yeah. so you started really doing then stump work almost right away yeah and i i played around with other genres but i kept coming back to these stump work kits and these stump work books um and i think some people's brains work in 2D and some people's brains work in 3D. I have a brain that really only works in 3D. <laughs> and I actually have trouble designing for 2D. Um, it just doesn't make as much sense to me. So I kept kind of going back to these stump work kits and books and Jenny's kits and trying more things, um, you know, just for fun. But I ended up doing, I think I've done six of her kits now, seven. Holy smokes. Some I have spent some ridiculous amount of money and enjoyed every bit of it with her. <laughs> um, and now she has a store. And so now a lot of my supplies come from her store because she carries supplies that other people just don't. So now I'm grateful for her in a different way because she has the store and I can supply for my own artwork out of her store. <laughs> The only, the only, the only thing is patience for the mail to get to you. Yep. Yeah, it does take a while. You just have to be patient about that. But it's worth it. Her stuff is great. Hmm. Well, that's it. I mean, you you just absolutely jumped in the deep end here. Wow. That's like I said. I didn't know that that was the deep end. I just I did not know enough to know any better. <laughs> I suppose, which worked out in the end. Hey. Yep. So All do you right. have an art background? Um, no, what? I don't. Both of my parents are research scientists. And you <laughs> are? <laughs> so right now I am a full-time artist, but that's pretty recent. That's the last year. Um, before this, I was actually a copywriter and I worked in marketing. Hmm. Interesting. Um, 
And for better or for worse, when essentially factory production stopped at the beginning of the pandemic, I found myself functionally without a job for who knows how long. And at that point, I was lucky I had savings, so I wasn't so worried about that. But I thought, I have to do something every day. I can't just sit around. What am I going to do? And then I realized that Cities and Guilds was still running their classes, and they have a stump work certification. And I thought, well, if I'm just going to sit around my house and I can't go anywhere, I might as well try this. Someone who took advantage of the pandemic. There we go. <laughs> I, I feel sort of callous saying this because the pandemic was horrible, but it changed my life. I would not have been able to get going and build a business and become a full-time artist without the pandemic. Mm-hmm. It wouldn't have happened. It, it was. It gave me the time to build up a portfolio. It gave me the time to get a certification. There's just no way without it. My life would be so different. It's strange to think about now. Uh, I, I think, uh, I think as time goes on, we're going to discover that you're not alone there. Um, yeah, I think a lot of people's lives changed, but I just couldn't stomach the idea of sitting around a house, not doing anything all day. And thank goodness for all these embroidery programs that have now gone online and right. are doing educational things online, because I think that is new too. and might not have happened without the pandemic. And it gave lots of people, I think, new opportunities. Yeah, I think that was the one thing in the needlework world, really. I mean, people had to shift. And so the the ability to do online, whether they learn Zoom or, or Skype or um, doing um, YouTube videos, really opened up the world um, to new and techniques and new artists. It was great. That yeah, and as you, you all know, from the people you interview, a lot of these programs are in the UK. So if you're right. an American, online is your only access anyway. Right. Right. Yeah. right. All right. Now, you, no formal art training. Your your work doesn't no. your work doesn't suggest that. Was it? Just... I have still never taken a basic drawing class or a basic color theory class. I keep telling myself I'm gonna go to an arts I mean I work at a museum that gives them I really have no excuses at this point (laughs) I could just take one from one of my friends uh at this point but I just haven't had the time but yeah and you know my mom did some painting when I was growing up but she worked a high level scientific research job so she picked that up again in retirement but there wasn't there weren't people making art in my house they weren't making art no one sewed No one did embroidery. There was none of that when I was growing up. I just wasn't exposed to any of it. Hmm. That uh, most most people come from a a background, even if they don't have formal training, they come from a creative family of people who are always making and doing that kind of thing. So yeah, so it's it's in your genes, hidden from (laughs) hidden from the rest of the family. (laughs) I guess, but in some ways, I wonder because. If you look at the stuff I do, there is an element of sort of scientific model making (laughs) to some of it. Yeah. And I do wonder if part of that does come down there. Like there is an analytical component of it of let's analyze a watercolor or something and then think about how to render that in a different format. Hmm. Yeah. 
It's it. I mean, it's just interesting. And then how, how do you evolve? Like you know, I learned stump work. I do Jenny's kits, but then your art is a real mixture of materials and media. How does that all come to be? Is it just, again, you don't know enough to, you just kind of go at it with a blank slate because you don't have any, anybody telling you what's right and wrong. Yeah. I think in some ways, if you don't ever learn a bunch of rules, maybe it frees you (laughs) to try a lot of different things. Um, Part of it was when I moved to Maryland, one of my good friends here is essentially a found object mixed media artist. She makes oyster jewelry and art. And she's one of these people who can go on a walk with her dog for 20 minutes and pick up a bunch of ugly stuff off the ground and turn it into something beautiful and sellable in her studio. And I started to play with things like found objects and repurposed elements and mixed media things because I would go visit her in her studio and I would see all these amazing things she made basically out of trash and say, well, some of this will work for me. Or sometimes she would just show up at my house and say, here, I gathered some things for you. Go put this in this piece you're working on. (laughs) So, you know, she would also kind of push me a little bit. Um, Like I, when I was working on this found object lighthouse, she kind of gave me the idea. And there's this beautiful piece of glass for the moon in the upper corner. And she found that while we were walking our dogs together on the sidewalk and just shoved it in my pocket and said, it can be a night scene. Here's your moon. Take it home. (laughs) (laughs) So I feel like hanging out with her has taught me to see the possibilities in unconventional things and incorporate that and see the possibilities in reusing things and being more eco-friendly and incorporating objects and all that stuff. Right. I I know like, um, like you use Tyvek and it does have, once you have someone that shows you, like we, we had friends, a group of us just get together at the library and we would experiment with those sort of materials. Like we would get sheets that we'd bring something in and we'd paint on it and then you'd put some heat on it and stencil. And it was just interesting what something so ordinary as, as Tyvek would become once you played with a little bit. Oh yeah. I I love Tyvek and all of those, I guess technically they're called spun bonded textiles i love that whole category of sort of semi-industrial stuff that doesn't stand out until you start painting it and heating it and messing with it it can be so beautiful and actually mimic natural and nature textures really well which sounds odd when you say if you just paint and heat up some plastic look (laughs) it's a rock but (laughs) right right Right. I I say this to my students in class and they just look at me and I say, no, you're going to do it. You're going to see. You won't think I'm crazy in two hours. Right. (laughs) And I think creative people like that, like your friend, they make us look at the world in a different way. You know, they they all have a friend that does that. She gathers stuff, you know, on her walks, random bits, and then she makes art from it. And it makes me look at my world differently when I when I see what she's done. And it makes me want to incorporate things that I see on my walks. 
that maybe it makes it more meaningful because I've picked it up and then add it to my own work. Yeah. And it's funny when I look at the big pieces I make. So I, I guess the result of doing this full time is everybody knows what you do, especially since I work at the museum in town and people start giving you stuff which is great. But now when I look at my pieces, I often not only see the work that I've done, but I see all of the other friends and acquaintances who contributed to that work mm. by bringing me fabrics or by bringing me random things they found on their walk. So I almost, I see the community behind it, not just the work that I did. And to me, at least that makes those pieces more meaningful. Yeah. Some depth. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, when you see it in a show, you don't see all that. But I see, okay, you know, Ginger gave me this and Nancy gave me this. And, you know, someone from the museum gave me this fabric. And I see all of that stuff. Right. So do you, when you do your designs, which there's needlework and then there's all these found things, do you do you try to strike a balance with needlework in there, uh, you know, half needlework and half other stuff? Or is it just I've got a bunch of things and needlework will fill in the gaps and create some texture and some color for me? Uh, what's, what's the process that you go through when you put something together? Well, so I always start thinking about actually where the needlework will be first. Because I am still, even though I do mixed media stuff, I'm still really obsessed with stump work. So I start out thinking, okay, which portions of this are going to be needlework or stump work techniques? And then I start thinking, okay, how do I fill in around this with other stuff? And I partially got here because, so I made the first ever historic Mardi Gras float I made, I made as a final project for my cities and guilds. And my tutor was really helpful. And I think she also thought I was slightly nuts, but she was still very supportive. (laughs) (laughs) I was really grateful for that. She basically said, this is lovely, but you know, you don't have to do this. I said, yeah, but you won't disqualify me if I do, right? Um, (laughs) I really want to make this. Um, And so, and that float was all stump work. It was classic techniques. It was all historic. And it took 135 hours to make, and it was six inches long. Oh, my. (laughs) Right. So it was beautiful and I loved it. But all of a sudden, if you start, say, applying to group shows, they say, "Okay, this is great. Bring your 25 pieces in six months. Oh, yeah. And you can't do that. You can't make things that way if you want to teach and sell in a fine art context. There's an upper limit on time you can spend. And that's when I started playing around with mixed media and found objects. And I thought, well, can I keep the meaningful parts of the stump work and then fill in with stuff that's faster. Right. But also without it, I'm, I'm always conscious of wanting my pieces to look like textile pieces at the end of the day. I don't want to do so much mixed media that they don't read as a textile anymore. Okay. Yeah. That's what I was getting to is, is okay. So, so you, you do want them to be needlework textile pieces and uh, so the, the found stuff is almost supportive then. Right. So I see the found stuff in the mixed media as essentially supporting my stump work addiction, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Right. Mm-hmm. Or, or complementing or even maybe enhancing the stump work with other textures. So often I'll say, okay, these one or two areas that are the most prominent will be 
traditionally stitched or stump work techniques. And then all these big spaces around it, background and grass or trees or whatever, I will find other ways to fill in and complement these areas. Okay. But, but not, not for speed, not to get it finished. It's just, that's the, what, what you see as material that, that uh, makes the overall uh, thing you're trying to create. Yeah. I, I don't want to dilute. It's sort of a fine line because speed is great, but I'm also, so the last one I did with all the tulips, I ended up making all of those wired petals. There were um, 22. I ended up making them all, you know, doing them as wired petals because I tried a bunch of mixed media techniques and they didn't look right. And even though I knew it would take longer than I had budgeted in terms of studio time, I wanted it to look right to me. That was really important. So I went ahead and I spent the 25 hours or whatever (laughs) to make all these (laughs) petals. Right. Um, so I'm not willing to sort of compromise on the stitching just to speed up the process. But obviously, if you're, say, painting Tyvek and heating it to make a background element, that's a lot faster than traditional stump work techniques. So it does help in terms of speed. But it doesn't take away from the piece. You know, you don't want it to to take away from the, the art itself. So, yeah. Right. And it, but I want it to complement and I want it to feel like a textile and not like a mixed media painting or a mixed media collage piece. I really want it to sort of be a modern version of a traditional stump work textile. And I feel like it's in the spirit of it because when people, when stump work was in its heyday, people were just using random stuff they found around their house. If you think about it, they were doing found object and mixed media too. We just don't think of it that way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right, right. Because, they, you know, you they know. were using their own hair and random bits of wood and stuff that they found. So that's, in my mind, that's not so far off from my approach. It's just that we have Tyvek and they didn't. <laughs> right, right. That's going to sound really strange. There are going to be a bunch of classic stump work people who are going to listen to this and be shaking their head. <laughs> <laughs> So is there a, a desire, though, to make a series of complete stump work, you know, solid stump work pieces or uh, the, going that far just doesn't work for you? You need to have some other elements. So I have made I've made some I've made some for exhibitions. I think it depends on the context. I really fell into exhibiting and then teaching in a fine art context. And what I have found that the embroidery world and the fine art world are really different. So depending on who I talk to, if I talk to a needlework person, they say, well, I love your work, but do we have to talk about the plastic if you write a class description? (laughs) And when you teach and you exhibit in fine art context, they also say, I love your work. Don't change anything. But we don't have to talk about sewing in your class description, right? We can just sneak that in when you teach. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So depending on the context, full stump work pieces are more successful in some contexts. And in a fine art context, there is a more mixed reaction to them. Sewing is a divisive subject in art. This is what I have learned. Oh yeah, it very much is. You know, and, and that it was right. as you're describing that, what's going through my head is how do we get over the hump of that thinking that 
if there's a threat involved, it's not really art. It's, you know, partially women's work or whatever. It's so frustrating because, I mean, there are thousands and thousands of pieces of pure art that are all needle and thread textile. And it, I, don't, I don't get it. If it's not paint or oil or pencil, it doesn't Or count. marble. Yeah, or marble. Yeah. 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 So frustrating. Yeah, and it's, it's funny, too, because I get into fine art shows, even though I do have the sewing component. But then when you talk about it, you have to sort of... So, for instance, if you met me at work, I would probably say, well, I make mixed media relief textiles. Hmm. which if you think about it is stump work mixed media. But if you say stump work, people go, Oh, what's that? And then you explain it. They say, Oh, it's embroidery. And you say, well, yes, but it's also sculpture. Look, it's sculpture, but somehow talking about it that way throws people off. Sometimes I've learned. So I found that depending on the context in which I'm working and teaching and exhibiting, I have to find out different ways to talk about my work and, in a fine art context, I've learned to talk about it more like a painting than an embroidery piece. I hope that makes sense. Yeah. Because that way, people who do paint and do more traditional mediums, they can understand and they can see it in a way that makes sense to them. But you shouldn't have to. Yeah, I feel like that sometimes, too. But I also like having a job. So (laughs) at some point, you got to compromise on something, right? Right, right. And I have to say, really, as a great shout out to the places that I work, they hired me knowing the kind of work that I make and the kind of stuff that I teach. And all of my bosses have been so extremely supportive of my work and I'm so lucky and grateful to them, even though they're all painters and I don't think they understand it, but they have been really supportive and lovely. And no one has ever said, can you be different? Can you try this other thing? I mean, they have been really great about it and all its wacky weirdness. Uh, And I'm not sure all museum teaching jobs or fine art center teaching jobs would be that way. I think I've just lucked out and gotten a really nice group of people um, but you do have to talk about it differently in different contexts, I think. Yeah. So what is it that you do at the museum? Is, is that where you teach your classes? And So, yeah, so I teach at the Art Academy Museum in East Maryland, which is where I live. They are, I think, the biggest regional museum on the eastern shore in the Maryland-Chesapeake Bay region. Um and so they have great exhibits, but their whole second floor is beautiful art studios, and they bring in local artists to teach a whole range of classes for adults and teenagers. So it's okay. a really great venue, and I'm lucky because it's about three blocks from my house, so oh. I can walk to work. Oh, very um, nice. And in the spring and summer, I'll be teaching online at Winslow Art Center at Winslow Art Center in Seattle. And I'm going to be teaching a bunch of basically mixed media process classes to show people how to replicate my studio process. Hmm. So both the stump work component and the mixed media component, which I think is going to be really fun. So I'm teaching one that focuses on my studio process, but applied to nature textiles. Mm Mm-hmm. 
And then I'm going to be teaching one that is my studio process, but applied to found object textiles. Hmm. And those will both be four weeks online. And I'm really excited about that, too, because you get to get very in-depth. And students really get to see all the wacky, weird things in my studio <laughs> that I do on a regular basis. <laughs> the uh, uh, teaching online come uh, fairly easy to you, or is that you prefer in uh, face-to-face? I like face-to-face. Well, I find it easier to teach online, but as someone who spends a lot of time in basically a windowless attic working (laughs) in my studio, I also like teaching face-to-face because I get to see other people. And when you're an artist and you work at your house, you have no coworkers. My coworker is my dog. So you do have to make time and space to see other humans. I think it's healthy. So part of what I like about teaching in person although I think it's easier to teach sewing online because you can run all these close-ups of things is that I do get to see people and I get to meet new people in town and I get to just be a person and a group of people, which is kind of rare. Yeah. The um, uh, evolution from (laughs) your one bedroom apartment and needing something to do to uh, working at a museum and teaching and exhibiting I mean, that's a that's a pretty quick turn there. Uh, was, it is, was and it... I'm pretty sure everyone in my life thought I'd lost it for a while until I started getting <laughs> hired to do things. I think they were all very relieved when I started getting actual job offers. Let's put it that way. <laughs> well, yeah, that that's just it. Uh, to, to be able to now make that a full-time thing, uh, so not planned at all. It just, you just started doing things and showing them and then it just happened to you. Yeah, I'm really lucky, but I understand it was, and it was quick for me. If you had asked me 10 years ago, if I would be doing this, I would have laughed in your face and said, no, I'm not artistic. I can't draw. You know, how could I be an artist? That's crazy. (laughs) Yeah. It's, I mean, it's, it's neat the way it happens. And you're not the first person we've talked to that, that has, had things had a whole evolution happen to them um and then they find themselves in a whole different world uh, it's it's pretty neat cuz you know, obviously you're doing what you enjoy every day and and you can't beat that on any front right yeah i'm really lucky when when i i interviewed for a job a couple months ago the woman who ran the program says, Oh, I love you're so enthusiastic about your subject. I said, of course, this is my dream job. What is there not to be happy about? <laughs> yep, that's great. So uh, talk about now you've got uh, you just finished up your uh, chest beat skipjack workshop and uh, starting March seven now is this your bird's nest, which I love. Boy, that's really great. Uh, music box class. Do you have other classes that that you're running yourself or is everything through the museum and uh, um, how how do you approach that? Uh, So, yes, I've I've finished that up. And actually, I think we're going to do a rerun at the museum of both of those classes, maybe in the fall. But I've talked to them about doing it online. Because I guess they had a bunch of people say that they wanted to do it, but they couldn't 
do the timing of the four week class. And I had a bunch of people message me on Instagram and say, I want to take this, but I don't live in Maryland. Can we do something about it? So I think we're actually going to do reruns of those sometime probably in the fall and we'll do them as zoom. So anyone who wants to can join in, uh, which I, I think would be great because then it wouldn't be just locals. Uh, I'm teaching a bunch of, mixed media process classes actually I'm teaching a class this summer entirely on Tyvek and that kind of stuff through the museum in person, which should be fun. So I'm teaching all in person at the museum this spring and summer. And then I'm teaching online, but through Winslow art center in Seattle this summer and spring as well. So I'm not doing any of it through my own umbrella, which I actually find very reassuring because they all have systems in place for teaching, which means I don't have to invent my own system. Right. And they manage student um, registration and all of that stuff. So I think I'm, I'm very lucky to be able to do it that way and to not have to figure out the logistics behind it. They do most of that for you. Yeah, you can't beat that because a lot of people have to do the administrative part on top of the teaching and the art. Yeah. So. Yeah, I'm really lucky that I can just show up and teach and I don't have to deal with the rest of it. Uh, I'm very privileged in that sense. And like I said, I have great bosses and great coworkers, and I've really enjoyed the whole process so far. What What's the demographic that you're attracting? Is it uh, are you getting a lot of young people? Um, So I had some young people who wanted to take it, but also the classes were Tuesday at noon and basically said, I would like to take your class, but I have a job. How did you <laughs> yeah. teach this online? Um, so the museum is a mix of demographics. It depends on when your classes run. They have both weekend and evening and day classes. So the demographics obviously tend to change during the day it tends to be more retirees. And then evenings and weekends tend to be more of a mix of everybody. So it depends on when you run something, the types of students you get. So your your day-to-day work is rather random and up to whenever classes happen and your time at the museum then. You're not doing a nine-to-five on this at all then. No, I have, if I'm not teaching, my nine-to-five essentially is time in my studio. So there might be some weeks where I'm teaching three or four days that week and I'm not in my studio a lot. And then there might be some weeks I'm not teaching at all that week. So I'm just in my studio and it just depends on my schedule. Yeah. And of course I'm ignoring the fact that you're up all night. So. <laughs> yeah. Right. So, right. but that's okay. Cause then I can, you know, sleep in. So that works too. <laughs> <laughs> so are you taking any classes, you know, um, for yourself um, to further your development? I do make an effort to try and take a class. I actually just took, this is going to seem kind of random, um, but I took a passamentary workshop. I don't even know if I'm saying it right. Passamentary on, I I just took one of those online a couple weeks ago. Um, Uh, Beth, who was that lady we talked to? Um, Yeah, I don't know if you guys interviewed her. Uh, Libby Ashdown was the teacher. No, Elizabeth Ashdown. It was something um, starting with a C. 
I have her little tool that she used to make the yes. cording, <laughs> which now, is so cool. Now Libby Ashtown, got to talk to her. Yeah, who? Yes, did, she oh. would be great for you guys. Um, but I just and and she's again, I, I related to her in the sense that she does this really traditional thing, but she does it in crazy bright colors and unconventional. Um yarns and stuff that's really bright and then she frames them as modern art pieces very cool there's something and about so, making those cords that is like the kumihama, kumihama the the japanese one in the i i do it in a circle have you ever done that no i have braiding oh that's fun oh well sorry another track but <laughs> and i i just I actually the other thing was i just bought some weaving kits because I have some ideas of incorporating weaving and needle felting because I don't have enough to do in my life. Um, but that means I have to learn to do it on a basic level. So, yeah. And, I Anna, just bought some kits on that. Anna Crutchley. There. Oh, I've heard of her. I have her book. See, I own so many books. <laughs> I have her book on tassels. Yes. Yes. Amazing <laughs> yes. woman. Amazing woman. Yes. Yes. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, and needle felting. I can see you because you can needle felt on the Tyvek, I do believe. Right. So you can needle felt on Tyvek. You can needle felt on felt. And and needle felting can become 3D and sculptural. Right, right. And then you can stitch on top of it. So I I have so many. See, this is my problem. This is how I get hooked on things. I have so many conceptual ideas. And I think I know what this could be. I just I don't know how to do it yet. but I, I know. can probably and, figure out how to do it. Yeah, and I have um I've always wanted to take one of those silk cocoons and stitch on that. And talking to you, yeah, I don't know why I've then. I've seen that. I, I know. Doesn't that seem like that would be fun? And then you could because then it would you could make it a flower. It's just it's just the perfect shape. Oh now I'm gonna have to go find my bag of if you find silk a cocoons. class on that, please email me. I would take it. <laughs> I've never seen a class a heartbeat. on it. I've never seen a class on it either, but oh, no. we'll have to beg but someone would... to run one. Yes. Yes. So we can learn how to do that. Cause I mean, it, or we could just try it ourselves and, you know, just know. experiment. Right? Well, that's what <laughs> I do sometimes. Time. Cause sometimes yeah. I want to try something and there isn't a book on it or there isn't a book in English on it. So I just, I end up, my theory is the worst thing that can happen is you have to throw it out. Right. And I do and, throw a fair amount of stuff out because it just doesn't work. So, but you've learned something, and that's the right, thing. Right, you I, learn something every time. Right, right, right. Uh, it, there's always something to learn. So, and I, but I keep thinking, you know, with the needle lace with it, you know, doing the stump work, you've got that form there of the silk cocoon. Oh, it just got my little mind going. Now that was I know, bad. and you and you could paint them, and then you could yes. use them as part of sculptures, and combine the painting yes. with. See, this is how my brain works all the time. I know it's bad, it's and add beads to it. I could see beads with it too. Yeah, you know, doing dangled beads or something out of it. This oh. is how you end up having a disorganized studio full of stuff. Uh, yes, and which is why I have a disorganized. Well, it's not a studio, but it's. The craft room, yeah. Mm-hmm. Scary. <laughs> Scary. Yeah. yeah. 
Well, that was it. Was I got such a kick out of your uh, post about cleaning up your workspace because uh, we were talking a, a ahead of time about how I've been remodeling a, a half bath, and it just dawned on me I had so many tools and things all over, and I was spending so much time looking for things and stepping over and stepping around things that I I just quit at some point and cleaned up the mess and got things organized because I was just wasting time. And it, it really hit me just in general, because I, I, I think we all three of us tend to live in you know, enough workspace on the table to do, you know, to do your thing, but everything else is around is just kind of a collection of things that should have been put away. And uh, it, it really just hit me you know, you got to keep your workspace organized. I, I was wasting so much time, and and so I've been really conscious of that. And when you said you know you, you got to a point where you just couldn't function anymore, um, and then I thought about all those found items and things that you got to keep organized somehow. And um, I think it's it's a it's a good lesson. Well, the problem is they're organized, but they're not organized to anyone but me. So I have them in boxes, but some of my boxes just say things like 100 plus years. <laughs> or I have one box, which is all antique materials, but it just says 100 plus on it in Sharpie. Um, <laughs> or I have one box that just says Angela and Ginger. And that's where all of my really great mixed media supplies that two of my friends have given me are all in there. Or... So, so they're in there and they're all labeled or one just says tiny wooden bits. <laughs> That's it. It's just a shoebox that says tiny wooden bits. And Sharpie. Right. Um, so it all makes sense to me. But if anyone else came in here and tried to find something, I don't think it would be helpful to anybody else. <laughs> it's, it just needs to be helpful to you, though. Isn't that the yeah, most Yeah, it's all labeled that? in terms of kind of personal meaning rather than organization. Right. Which right. Is, I suppose, a type of organization. Um, but not like, I still couldn't tell anyone to come in here and say, just go find something. It's here. I think it would still be very difficult. Right. Well, but it's not, not their space. So that's okay. Yeah. My theory is I have a door that closes and no one else has to live with this space, but me, thankfully, I'm not sure anyone else would want to live with this space, but me (laughs) at this point, I have so much stuff packed in here. Yeah. Uh Now, when yeah. when we when we moved to this uh, our our house now, my wife uh, my wife and I in in the old house shared a what was our son's bedroom. Uh, we shared it. Uh, both of our desks were in there, and I know it drove her nuts because she all, everything is always put away with her and lined up and organized and and stuff will pile up on my desk and in my workspaces to the point where when I simply can't move anymore, then I'll stop and clean up. And I know it drove her nuts. So when we got this place, we had two bedrooms, three bedroom home, and, and we each took one for an office. And I I know she's glad that <laughs> everything is, <laughs> everything of me is in one place and she doesn't have to look at it. But, <laughs> Yeah, I'm pretty sure that's what my husband thinks. He's an artist, too, but he's so completely organized. His studio is so clean, people don't believe he uses it. Oh, <laughs> uh, no. Not, and it's, no. he uses it every day, but he's just this super clean, organized person. But people come over, they say, oh, you must not have been painting much recently. He says, no, I'm in here three hours a day. I just clean. <laughs> 
put things away when I'm done. Not that, not me. Yeah, just He's looking around right now. Everything. I don't even know. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I just try and make sure I don't leave the paint water in the paint jar so the cats drink it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I have a very basic sense of cleanliness. <laughs> well, that's a humanitarian um, thing there. That's that's touching. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I try and use non-toxic paints in case I forget. <laughs> I'm trying to do better. Right. right. So what lies ahead oh. for you? Classes? You got uh, more art that you're working on? Yeah, I'm I'm going to be teaching a lot this spring and summer. I'm working on finishing this series of Mardi Gras floats um, because I, well, they're going to go to a local show here, but also I'm submitting to a really big juried show in New Orleans called No Dead Artists, which is for emerging artists and is basically what it sounds like. The only requirement is you have to be an emerging artist and you have to be alive. Um yeah. But oh, it's wait, at a wait, gallery. Wait, 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 wait. Talk about that that Mardi Gras series, those watercolors that you used for inspiration. Holy smokes, those were. Yes. They're so cool, aren't they? The Tulane Archive is a gem. Um, I, you know, when I was doing Cities and Guilds, I bought an art book on Mardi Gras invitations because I thought I was going to start sort of transforming those for my final project. And parts of them didn't really work, but there was another book in the series on floats. And in it, there was a section about anonymous female Mardi Gras designers from the 1880s through the 1930s. And many of the designs I sent you were by anonymous female designers. And these were women who were designing all of the parades for 10 years or 20 years um, under assumed names or without any credit. And they were running the whole thing. Oh, wow. And many of them weren't even, I think their names weren't revealed until later because when Tulane started collecting all this stuff for their archive, the watercolors were signed and they didn't understand the signatures. And they started researching to try and figure out who had been signing these things. And they had found out that it traced back to these women like, Jenny Wilde or, or Carlotta Bonacase, who had been, you know, a major part of why Mardi Gras in the golden era of it looked that way. And I think it's amazing. Um, so women could not legally parade, just to really show you how amazing this was. Women could not legally ride on a float <laughs> when these women were designing all the floats and all the costumes and all the invitations. So they could not have gone to a parade or participated in a parade, but they were making it all happen. Man, you know. <laughs> well, but, but that's fascinating that wow. they uh, they just found that out. Because those drawings that you sent us were just, they're beautiful, the watercolors. I mean, it was just like fantastic. And yet they, they were they, true artists. I mean, mm -hmm. truly astounding artists. Right. And, and yet they, you know, they were they were so wonderful. They got published, and I don't know. Just that's just fascinating. And then you I took it to the next level and did uh, made them made them three D. Well, in some ways, I'm just doing what people would have done originally. So the way the design system worked originally was the designer would make these watercolors of everything of costumes and jewelry and floats, 
But they didn't make that happen. So the costume stuff would get sent off to Paris and then all the costumes would get sent back by boat from Paris fashion houses and jewelers would make the fake jewels and artists would then paint each invitation. And then the float makers, they would start at the same place I did with this watercolor. That's what they got. And then it was their job to essentially do what I'm doing as a textile artist but, you know, with a real float that moved and rolled through the street. But it's really the same process. I'm starting with the same material that all of the other artists would have been at the time. That that Mardi Gras thing is such an amazing world. Because, it you know, what we see on the news is the Mardi Gras parades, which just like look like utter madness. But, yeah, there's this whole culture and process behind those floats. Yeah, they're not just thrown together. It's And many of the float designers now working for many of the crews, this is sort of how I started researching this, are also female. Oh. So, and, and except now they have Instagram. So they post all this amazing stuff on Instagram, but they're really working in similar ways. Um, and some of them have moved very high up in the system and are making – amazing designs so there's this continuity with mardi gras not just of a real art culture um and i don't know how much you you all know about these parades but in many parades all of the writers are also artists who make their own throws Mm. so that's why so many of these throws are collectible because they were all made by a person they're not plastic and many writers spend the whole year making these handmade art throws to give to people on the parade route. So there's this huge cultural and art engine that Mardi Gras is in New Orleans. But also there's this long tradition of women working within it, credited or uncredited, that I think is really important. And I guess there was a a women's art and design college very, very early in New Orleans that basically started churning these women out who moved up in the system even as early as, I think, 1870. Huh. Interesting. Uh, And they were essentially training women in the domestic arts, so painting, stitching, so they could be good wives, except some of these women ended up running all the designs for the Rex Parade for 10 years with the same training. Wow. Yeah, I didn't know any of that, none of that. It's fascinating once you really look at their work and they're all individual. Um, you can see trends as the eras move on. One of them. So the first float I ever did, the full stump work one, which was the Lady of Shalott float, was by a woman they discovered later was by a woman named Jenny Wild. And it's so sparkly. The, the one I made was so sparkly because I read her signature was that on as the top layer of her watercolors she would put a whole layer of clear glitter on top Hmm. of her float watercolors to really emphasize to designers that she wanted this thing to glitter. That was really important to her. Um, So when I made mine, I ended up building these glittery elements in, I think it was five layers of stump work at every layer, because it was really important to me to sort of honor that aspect of her design. A whole other thing to learn about, Gary. I know. Yeah. Well, see, I didn't, you know, I knew that uh, about the, you know, the, the teams or whatever that build these floats and uh, it's almost a year long process, but I had no idea all that was even behind that effort. Holy smokes. 
Yeah, it, it's a major, I mean, Mardi Gras is a tourist event, but if you live there, it's also a major, almost mass public art event in the city, which is why I always liked it so much. Yeah. You you get to see artists at work for free and collect their art and take it home for free. It's kind of an amazing opportunity. Yeah. That, yeah. I, I used to get to trade shows in new Orleans with quite a bit of regularity. And, and once you get past the, the bars and the, you know, the night scene, you really start to appreciate the, there's a huge culture there that just isn't anywhere else in the country. And, uh, it, that is steeped in, in religion and history. And there's just so much more to that city than we get through, you know, through the normal media. And uh, mm -hmm. now you just put another layer of depth to that. That's wow. Yeah. It, it was an amazing place to live. And I suspect we'll probably live there again one day. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's truly an amazing place to live. And just art is everywhere. Music is everywhere. You walk down the corner and you're just steeped in it. So even though I wasn't really, you know, I wasn't working as an artist there for a bunch of the time that I lived there, I feel like it sort of taught me to see art and think about art because there's just no way to avoid it if you live there. Right. You're just sort of marinating in it, whether <laughs> yeah. you like it or not. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a city like no, no other. No question about it. Yeah. Right. It's got such a melding of cultures there, you know, um, you know, so many. And there's an art form for every culture in New Orleans, whether it's beading or Mardi Gras. And all of these cultures have their different parade art forms that are really old. And it's truly incredible. Yeah, it really uh, hit me. There's uh, I listened to Mark Marin podcast and he had a trombone player whose name just escaped me. And from New Orleans, uh, he interviewed him and he talked about how musically there was a language for different sectors of the city and different groups and that they could get together and they knew where you were from, from just the way you played your music. And yeah, I believe that. Yeah. Just so much of that art. Well, yeah, art, music, doesn't matter what it is. It's still art. And, uh, yeah, it's a fascinating city. It really is. When, you know, hurricanes uh, come through and people say, why don't you, why do you live there? And you can really understand why people don't want to leave the city because there's just so much, so much more there than, than just some big city in the U.S. Yeah, and in part, I think it helps that it wasn't part of the U.S. for so long. It was French and then it was Spanish and... It grew up culturally as its own area. So when you move there, there's a joke that if you expect a well-administered American city, you'll be disappointed because a lot of things just don't work. But if you expect a well-administered Caribbean city, you'll be right on. And I think that it feels like that. It feels more European. It's, it feels like a different sort of place to live in. Yeah. Yeah, With all that's good and bad about that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. You know, right. sometimes your power doesn't work and the street in front of your apartment is flooding, but you can also get great food on every street corner and there's art and there's music everywhere. And it seems to even out most of the time. <laughs> right. right. And the architecture is fantastic in the French Quarter. That's that's what I remember the most. The architecture both. is fantastic everywhere. Yeah. You can throw a rock and hit a great, beautiful 
building and people get to live in them because now so many of them are apartments yeah it's a special place there's no doubt about it so so you think eventually you'll end up back there then I suspect. I mean, so we moved back to Maryland. I'm an only child and my parents are in their 80s and they just needed me to be closer than I was. Um, But there is this joke that no one really leaves New Orleans. You just take a break for 10 years or 20 years and then you end up right back where you started. (laughs) (laughs) And that is true. I don't know anyone who has moved away for any significant period of time who hasn't moved back. So maybe there is just this gravitational pull and everyone just ends up back there, whether they like it or not. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, fascinating stuff. All right. We have to quit. Unfortunately. Yeah, um, that's sad. That was great, Holly. Thank you so much for the time and for sharing your art with us. Thank you. This was so much fun. I really appreciate you guys inviting me. Yep. And thanks to everyone for listening. <laughs> <laughs>